Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The Skylark of Space by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Volume 5, Chapter 13. Seton and Crane drove the Skylark at high acceleration in the direction indicated by the unwavering compass, each man taking a 12-hour trick at the board. The Skylark justified the faith of her builders and the two inventors with an exultant certainty of success, flew out beyond man's wildest imaginations. Had it not been for the haunting fear for Dorothy's safety, their journey would have been one of pure triumph, and even that anxiety did not preclude a profound joy in the enterprise. If that misguided ape thinks he can pull a stunt like that and get away with it, he's got another think coming, Seaton declared, after making a reading on the other ship after a few days of flight. He went off half-cocked for sure this time, and we've got him right where the hair is short. Only about a hundred light-years now. Better we reverse pretty quick, you think? It's hard to say. Very hard. By our dead reckoning, he seems to have started back, but dead reckoning is notoriously poor reckoning, and we have no reference points. Well, dead reckoning's the only thing we've got. And anyway, you can't be a precisionist out here. A light year plus or minus won't make any difference. No, I suppose not. And Crane read off the settings, which, had his data been exact, would have put the Skylark in exactly the same spot with, and having exactly the same velocity as the other spaceship at the point of meeting. The big ship spun with a sickening lurch through a half circle as the bar was reversed. They knew that they were traveling in the direction that seemed down, even though they still seemed to be going up. Mart, come here. Yes, I'm here. We're getting a deflection. It's too big for a star, unless it's another Esteratus, and I can't see a thing. Theoretically, of course, it could be anywhere to the starboard. I want to check fast on true course and velocity. Is there any way to measure a gravity field you're falling freely in without knowing any distances? Any kind of approximation would help. Crane observed, computed, and reported that the Skylark was being very strongly attracted to some object almost straight ahead. We'd better break out the big night glasses and take a good look. As you said, this optical system could have more power. But how far away are they? Only a few minutes of a ten hours. Ow, well that's not good. In fact, that's very ungood. By pouring it on, we could make it in three or four, but even so, you... Even so, me, we're together in this dick all the way. Just pour it on. Don't worry about it. As the time of meeting drew near, they took readings every minute. Seaton juggled the power until they were very close to the other vessel and riding with it. Then he killed his engine. Both men hurried to the bottom port with their night glasses and stared into the star-studded blackness. Of course, Seaton argued as they stared. It's theoretically possible that a body can exist large enough to exert this much force and not show a disk, but I don't believe it. Give me four or five minutes of visual angle and I'll buy it, but... There, Crane broke in. At least a half a degree of visual angle. Eleven o'clock, fairly high. It's not bright. It's dark. It's almost invisible. Got it. That little black spot just inside the edge at half past four... Duquesne's job? I think so. Nothing else in sight. 
Well, let's grab it and get out of here while we're in one piece. In seconds, they had reduced the distance until they could plainly see the other vessel. A small, black circle against the somewhat lighter black of the dead star. Crane turned on the searchlight. Seaton focused their heaviest attractor and gave it everything it could take. Crane loaded a belt of solid ammunition and began to fire strangely spaced bursts. After an interminable silence, Duquesne drew himself out of his seat. He took a long drag of his cigarette and deposited the butt carefully in an ashtray and put on his spacesuit, leaving the faceplate open. I'm going after that copper, Miss Vanman. I don't know exactly how much of it I'll be able to recover, but I hope. Light fluttered in through a port. Duquesne was thrown flat as the ship was jerked out of freefall. They heard an insistent, metallic tapping, which Duquesne recognized instantly. A machine gun? He blurted in amazement. What in the... Wait a minute. That is Morse code. A-R-E-R... Y-O-U-U-A-L-I-V-E, alive. It's Dick, Dorothy screamed. He's found us. I knew he would. You couldn't beat Dick and Martin in a thousand years. The two girls locked their arms around each other in a hysterical outburst of relief. Margaret's incoherent words and Dorothy's praises of her lover mingled with their racking sobs. Duquesne had climbed to the upper port, had unshielded it. S.O.S., he signaled with his flashlight. The searchlight died. We know. Party okay? It was a light this time and not bullets. Okay, Duquesne signaled back. He knew what party meant and Perkins did not count. Suits? Yes, Duquesne answered. Will touch lock to lock. Brace selves. Okay, Duquesne signaled the last time. He reported briefly to the two girls. All three put on spacesuits and crowded into the tiny airlock. The lock was pumped down. There was a terrific jar as the two ships of space were brought together and held together. Outer valves opened. Residual air screamed out into the interstellar void. Moisture condensed upon glass rendered sight useless. Blast! Seaton's voice came tinnily over the helmet radios. I can't see a bloody foot. Can you, Duquesne? No, and these joints don't move more than a couple of inches. These suits need a lot more work. We'll have to go by feel. Pass them along. Duquesne grabbed the girl nearest him and shoved her toward the spot where Seaton would have to be. Seaton seized her, straightened her up, and did his heroic best to compress that suit until he could at least feel his sweetheart's form. He was very near astonished to feel motions of resistance and to hear a strange voice cry out, Don't! It's not Dottie! She's next! She was, and she put as much fervor into the reunion as he did. As a lover's embrace, it was rather unsatisfactory, but it was an eager, if distant, contact. Duquesne dived through the opening. Crane groped for the controls that closed the lock. Pressure and temperature came back to normal. The clumsy suits were taken off. Seaton and Dorothy went into each other's arms, and this time it was a real lover's embrace. We'd better stop doing something, came Duquesne's incisive voice. Every minute counts. One thing first, Crane said. Dick, 
What are we going to do with this murderer? Seaton, who had temporarily forgotten all about Duquesne, whirled around. Chuck him back into his own tub. Let him go to the devil, he said savagely. Oh, Dick, no! Dorothy protested instantly, seizing his arm. He treated us very well and saved my life once. Besides, you can't become a cold-blooded murderer just because he is. You know you can't. Maybe not. Fine, I won't kill him unless he gives me half an excuse. Maybe. Out of the question, Dick. Craig decided. Perhaps he could earn his way. Maybe. Seaton thought about that for a moment, his face grimming hard. He's as smart as Satan and strong as a bull, and if there's any possible one thing he is not, it's a liar. He faced Duquesne squarely, gray eyes boring into eyes of midnight black. Will you give us your word to act as one of the party? Yes. Duquesne stared back unflinchingly. His expression of cold unconcern had not changed throughout the conversation. It didn't change now. With the understanding that I reserve the right to leave you at any time. Escape is a melodramatic word, but it fits the facts closely enough, provided I can do so without affecting unfavorably your ship, your project, then in work, or your persons collectively or individually. You're the lawyer, Mart. Does that cover it? Admirably, Crane said. Fully yet concisely. Also, the fact of the reservation indicates that he means it. You're in, then, Seaton told Duquesne, but he did not offer to shake hands. You've got the dope. What do we have to do to pull away? You can't pull straight away and leave, but... Sure we can. Our power plant can be doubled in emergencies. I said and leave, Seaton. Seaton, remembering what one full power was like, kept still. The best you can do is a hyperbolic orbit. My guess is it'll take full power to make that. Ten pounds more copper might have given me a graze. But we are a lot closer now. You've got more and larger tools than I had, Crane. Do you want to recompute it now or give it a good heavy shot and then figure it out? A shot, I think. What do you suggest? Set your engine to roll for a hyperbolic and give it full drive for, say, an hour. Full power, Crane said thoughtfully. I can't take that much, but if... I can't either, Dorothy said, foreboding in her eyes. And neither can Margaret. But full power is necessary. Crane continued as though the girl had not spoken. Full power it shall be, then. Is it really of the essence, Duquesne? Definitely. More than full would be better, and it's getting worse every minute. How much power can you take? Seaton asked. More than full. Not much more, but a little. If you can, I can. Seaton was not boasting, merely stating a fact. So here's what we'll do. Double the engines up. Duquesne and I will notch the power up until one of us has to quit. Run an hour on that. Then read the news. Check? Check, said Duquesne and Crane simultaneously. And the three men set furiously to work. Crane went to the engines, Duquesne to the observatory. Seaton rigged helmets to the air and oxygen tanks through valves on his board. Seaton placed Margaret upon a seat, fitted a helmet over her head and strapped her in, and turned to Dorothy. Instantly they were in each other's arms. 
He felt her labored breathing and the hard beating of her heart, saw the fear of the unknown in the violet depths of her eyes. But she looked at him steadily as she said, Dick, sweetheart, if this is goodbye... It isn't, Dottie, not yet, but I know. Crane and Duquesne had finished their tasks, so Seaton hastily finished his job with Dorothy. Crane put himself to bed. Seaton and Duquesne put on their helmets and took their places at the twin boards. In quick succession, twenty notches of power went up. The Skylark leapt away from the other ship, which continued its mad fall. A helpless hulk, manned by a corpse, falling to destruction upon the bleak surface of a dead star. Notch by notch, slower now, the power went up. Seaton turned the mixing valve, a little with each notch, until the oxygen concentration was as high as they dared to risk. As each of the two men was determined that he would make the last advance, the duel continued longer than either would have thought possible. Seaton made what he was sure was his final effort and waited, only to feel after a minute the surge of the vessel that told him that Duquesne was still able to move. He could not move any part of his body, which was oppressed by a sickening weight. His utmost efforts to breathe forced only a little oxygen into his lungs. He wondered how long he could retain consciousness under this kind of stress. Nonetheless, he put out everything he had and got one more notch. Then he stared at the clock face above his head, knowing that he was done, and wondering whether Duquesne could put it up another notch. Minute after minute went by, and the acceleration remained constant. Seaton, knowing he was now in sole charge of the situation, fought off unconsciousness while the sweep hand of the clock went around and around. After an eternity of time, sixty minutes had passed, and Seaton tried to cut down his power, only to find that the long strain had so weakened him he could not reverse the ratchet. He was barely able to give the lever the backwards jerk which broke contact completely. Safety straps creaked as half the power shut off. Suddenly released, Springs tried to hurl five bodies upward. Duquesne revived and shut down his engine. You're a better man than I am, Gangadin, he said as he began to make observations. Because you were so badly bunged up, is all. One more notch would have pulled my cork. And Seaton went over to liberate Dorothy and the stranger. Crane and Duquesne finished their computations. Did we gain enough? More than enough. One engine will take us past it. Then as Crane still frowned in thought, Duquesne went on. Don't you check me, Crane? Yes and no. Past it, yes, but not safely past. One thing neither of us thought of, apparently. Roche's limit. That won't apply to this ship, Seaton said positively. High tensile alloy steel won't crumble. It might. Close enough it would. What mass would you assume, Crane? The theoretical maximum? I would. That star may not be that quite, but it isn't far from it. Both men again bent over their computers. I make it 39.7 notches of power doubled, Duquesne said when he had finished. Close enough, 0.65, Crane replied. 14 notches, well, 
I went out at 32. That means an automatic advance. It will take time, but it's the only way. We've got it already. All we have to do is set in. But that'll take an ungodly a lot of copper. What'll we do to live through it, plus pressure on the oxygen, or what? After a short but intense consultation, the men took all the steps they could to enable the whole party to live through what was coming. Whether they could do enough, no one knew. Where they might lie at the end of this wild dash for safety, how they were to retrace their way with their depleted supply of copper, what other dangers of dead star, sun, or planet lay in their path, were terrifying questions that had to be ignored. Duquesne was the only member of the party who actually felt any calmness, the quiet of the others expressing their courage and facing fear. The men took their places. Seaton started the motor, which would automatically advance both power levers exactly 40 notches and then stop. Margaret Spencer was the first to lose consciousness. Soon afterwards, Dorothy stifled an impulse to scream as she felt herself going under. A half minute later, and Crane went out, calmly analyzing his sensations to the last. Shortly thereafter, Duquesne also lapsed into unconsciousness, making no effort to avoid it, as he knew it would make no difference in the end. Seaton, though he knew it was useless, fought to keep his senses as long as possible, counting the impulses as the levers were advanced. 32. He felt the same as when he had advanced his lever for the last time. 33. A giant hand shut off his breath, although he was fighting to the utmost for air. An intolerable weight rested upon his eyeballs, forcing them back into his head. The universe whirled about him in dizzying circles. Orange and black and green stars flashed before his bursting eyes. 34. The stars became more brilliant and of more wildly variegated colors, and a giant pen dipped in fire wrote equations and symbols upon his quivering brain. 35. The stars on the fiery pen exploded in pyrotechnic coruscation of searing, blinding light, and he plunged into a black abyss. Faster and faster, the skylark hurtled downward in her not-quite-hyperbolic path. Faster and faster, as minute by minute went by, she came closer and closer to that huge dead star. Eighteen hours from the start of that fantastic drop, she swung around it in the tightest, hardest conceivable arc, beyond Roche's limit, it's true, but so very little beyond it that Martin Crane's hair would have stood on end if he had known. Then, on the back leg of that incomprehensibly gigantic swing, the forty notches of doubled power really began to take hold. At thirty-six hours, her path was no longer even approximately hyperbolic. Instead of slowing down, Relative to the dead star that held her in an ever-weakening grip, she was speeding up at a tremendous rate. At two days, that grip was very weak. At three days, the monster she had left was having no measurable effect. Hurtled upward, onward, outward by the inconceivable power of the unleashed copper demons in her center, the Skylark tore through the reaches of interstellar space with an unthinkable, almost incalculable velocity, beside which the velocity of light was as that of a snail to that of a rifle bullet.
Chapter 14 Seaton opened his eyes and gazed about him wonderingly. Only half-conscious, bruised and sore in every part, he could not remember what had happened. Instinctively drawing a deep breath, he coughed as the plus-pressure gas filled his lungs, bringing with it a complete understanding of the situation. He tore off his helmet and drew himself across to Dorothy's couch. She was still alive. He placed her face downward upon the floor and began artificial respiration. Soon he was rewarded by the coughing he had longed to hear. Snatching off her helmet, he seized her in his arms while she sobbed convulsively on his shoulder. The first ecstasy of their greeting over, she started guiltily. Oh, Dick, see about Peggy. I wonder if... Never mind, Crane said. She's doing nicely. Crane had already revived the other girl. Duquesne was nowhere in sight. Dorothy blushed vividly and disengaged her arms from around Seton's neck. Seton, also blushing, dropped his arms, and Dorothy floated away, clutching frantically at a handhold just out of her reach. Pull me down, Dick, Dorothy laughed. Seaton grabbed her ankle, unthinkingly neglecting his own anchorage, and they floated in the air together. Martin and Margaret, each holding a line, laughed heartily. Tweet, tweet, I'm a canary, Seaton said, flapping his arms. Toss us a line, Mart. A dicky bird, you mean, Dorothy said. Crane studied the floating pair with mock gravity. That is a peculiar pose, Dick. What is it supposed to represent? Zeus sitting on his throne? I'll sit on your neck, you log, if you don't throw me that rope. As he spoke, however, he came within reach of the ceiling and could push himself and his companion to a line. Seaton put a bar into one of the engines, and after flashing the warning light, applied a little power. The skylark seemed to leap under them, and then everything had its normal weight once more. Now that things have settled down a little, Dorothy said, I'll introduce you two to Miss Margaret Spencer a very good friend of mine. These are the boys I told you so much about, Peggy. This is Dr. Dick Seaton, my fiancé. He knows everything there is to be known about atoms, electrons, neutrons, and stuff like that. And this is Mr. Martin Crane, who is simply a wonderful inventor. He made all these engines and things. I may have heard of Mr. Crane, Margaret said eagerly. My father was an inventor, too. He used to talk about a man named Crane, who invented a lot of instruments for supersonic planes. He said they revolutionized flying. I wonder if you are that, Mr. Crane. That is unjustifiably high praise, Miss Spencer, Crane replied uncomfortably. But as I have done a few things along that line, I could be the man he referred to. If I may change the subject, Seaton said, where's Duquesne? He went to clean up, then he was going to the galley to check the damage and see about something to eat. What a great idea, Dorothy applauded. Food, and especially about cleaning up. If you know what I mean, and I think you do, come on, Peggy, I know where our room is. What a girl, Seaton said as the women left, Dorothy half-supporting her companion. She's bruised and beat up from one end to the other. She's more than half dead, and still. She didn't have enough life left in her to flag a hand car. She can't even walk. She can barely hobble. And did she let out one yip? I asked to know. 
Business as usual, all the way, if it kills her. What a girl. Include Miss Spencer in that too, Dick. Did she let out any yips? And she was not in nearly as good shape as Dorothy was to start with. That's right, Seaton agreed wonderingly. She's got plenty of guts too, those two women. Well, let's go get a bath and shave and shove the air conditioners up a couple of notches, will ya? When they came back, they found two girls seated at one of the ports. Did you dope yourself up, Dotty? Seaton asked. Yes, both of us, with a millifine. I'm getting to be a slave to the stuff. She made a wry face. Seaton grimaced, too. Yeah, so did we. Nice stuff, that a millifine. Come over here, look out this window. Have you ever seen anything like this? As the foreheads bent close together, an awed silence fell upon the little group. For the blackness of the black of the interstellar void is not the darkness of an earthly night, but an absolute absence of light, a black beside which platinum dust is merely gray. Upon this indescribably black backdrop there glowed faint patches which were nebula that blazed hard and brilliant and multicolored, dimensionless points of light which were stars. Like jewels on black velvet, Dorothy breathed. They are gorgeous, wonderful. Through their wonder, a thought struck Seaton, and he leapt to the board. Look here, Mart. I didn't recognize a thing out there, and I wonder why. We're heading away from the Earth. We must be plenty of light speeds. The swing around that big dud was really something, of course, but the engine should have... Or should it have? I think not. Unexpected, but not a surprise. That close to Roche's limit, well, anything might happen. And did, I guess. We'll have to check for permanent deformations. But this object compass still works. Let's see how far away we are from home. They took a reading, and both men figured the distance. What are you making out to be, Mart? I'm afraid to tell you my result. 46.27 light centuries. Is that right? That's what I found. Well, we're up the well-known creek without a paddle. The time is 23.32 by the chronometer. Good thing you built it to stand going through a stone crusher. My watch is a total loss. They all are, I imagine. We'll read it again in an hour or so and see how fast we're going. I'll be scared witless to say that figure out loud, too. Dinner is announced, said Duquesne, who had been standing by the door listening. The wanderers, battered, stiff, and sore, seated themselves at a folding table. While eating, Seaton watched the engine, when he was not watching Dorothy, and talked to her. Crane and Margaret chatted easily. Duquesne, except when addressed directly, maintained a self-sufficient silence. After another observation, Seaton said, Duquesne, we're almost 5,000 light-years away from Earth, and getting farther away at about one light-year per minute. It would be poor technique to ask how you know that. It would. Those figures are right, but we've got only four bars of copper left. Enough to stop us, and some to spare, but not nearly enough to get us back, even by drifting too many lifetimes on the way. So we land somewhere and dig up some copper. Check. What I wanted to ask you, isn't a copper-bearing sun apt to have copper-bearing planets? I would say so. Then take the spectroscope, will you? 
and pick out a sun somewhere ahead of us, down and ahead, I mean, for us to shoot at and mark. I suppose we'd better take our regular 12-hour tricks. No, eight. We've got to either trust the guy or kill him. I'll take the first watch. Beat it to bed. Not so fast, Crane said. If I remember correctly, it's my turn. Ancient history doesn't count. I'll flip you a nickel for it. Heads I win. Seaton won, and the worn-out travelers went to their rooms, all except Dorothy, who lingered to bid her lover a more intimate good night. Seated beside him, his arm around her and her head on his shoulder, she sat blissfully until she noticed for the first time her bare left hand. She caught her breath and her eyes grew round. What's the matter, Red? Oh, Dick, she exclaimed in dismay. I simply forgot everything about taking what was left of my ring out of the doctor's engine. What? What are you talking about? She told him, and he told her about Martin and himself. Oh, Dick, it's so wonderful to be with you again. I lived as many years as we covered miles. It was tough. You had it a lot worse than we did, but it makes me ashamed all over to think of the way I blew my stack at Wilson's. If it hadn't been for Martin's cautious old bean, we'd have... Well, we owe him a lot, Dimples. Yes, we do. But don't worry about the debt, Dick. Just don't ever let slip a word to Peggy about Martin being rich, okay? Ah, oh, so you're playing matchmaker now? But why not? She wouldn't think any less of him. That's one reason I'm marrying you, you know. For your money. Dorothy snickered sunnily. Yeah, I know. But listen, you poor dumb fortune-hunting darling. If Peggy had any idea that Martin is the one and only M. Reynolds Crane, she'd curl up right into a ball. She'd think he'd think she was chasing him, and then he would think that. As it is, he acts perfectly natural. He hasn't talked that way to any girl except for me for years, and he wouldn't talk to me until he found out for sure I wasn't after him. Could be, pet, Seaton agreed. You might be right on that. He's been shot at so much, he's wilder than a hawk. At the end of eight hours, Crane took over and Seaton stumbled to his room, where he slept for over ten hours like a man in a trance. Then rising, he exercised and went out into the saloon. Dorothy, Peggy, and Crane were at breakfast. Seaton joined them. They ate the gayest, most carefree meal they had eaten since leaving Earth. Some of the worst bruises still showed a little, but under the influence of the potent, if painful, amylophene, all soreness, stiffness, and pain had disappeared. After they had finished eating, Seaton said, You suggested, Mark, that those gyroscope bearings may have been stressed beyond the yield point? I'll take an integrating goniometer and... Break that down to our size, please, Dick. Peggy's and mine, Dorothy said. Ah, uh, right. Take some tools and see if anything got bent out of shape back there. It might be an idea, Dot, to come along and hold my head while I think. That is an idea, if you never have another one. Crane and Margaret went over and sat down at one of the crystal-clear ports. She told him her story frankly and fully, shuddering with horror as she recalled the awful, helpless fall during which Perkins had been killed. We have a heavy score to settle with that steel crowd. And with Duquesne, Crane said slowly. We can convict him of abduction now. Perkins' death wasn't murder then. 
Oh no, he was just like a mad animal. He had to kill him. But the doctor, as they call him, is just as bad. He's so utterly heartless and ruthless, so cold and scientific. It gives me the compound shivers just to think about him. And yet Dorothy said he saved her life. He did, from Perkins, but that was just as strictly pragmatic as everything else he's ever done. He wanted her alive, dead, she wouldn't be of any use to him. He's as nearly a robot as any human being can be. That's what I think. I'm inclined to agree with you. Nothing would please Dick better than a good excuse for killing him. He isn't the only one. The way he ignores, the way we all feel, shows what a machine he is. Hey, what's that? The Skylark had lurched slightly. Just a swing around a star, probably. He looked at the board that led her to a lower port. We're passing the star Dick was heading for. Far too fast to stop. Duquesne will pick another. See that planet over there? He pointed. And that smaller one there. She saw the two planets, one like a small moon and the other much smaller, and watched the sun increase rapidly in size as the Skylark flew on at such a pace that any earthly distance would have been covered as soon as it began. So appalling was their velocity that the ship was bathed in the light of that strange sun for only moments, and then it was surrounded again by darkness. Their 72-hour flight without a pilot had seemed a miracle. Now it seemed entirely possible that they could fly in a straight line for weeks without encountering any obstacle. So vast was the emptiness in comparison with the points of light scattered about in it. Now and then they passed closely enough to a star so that it seemed to move fairly rapidly. But for the most part, the stars stood like distant mountain peaks to travelers in a train, in the same position for many minutes. Awed by the immensity of the universe, the two at the window were silent, not with the silence of embarrassment, but with that of two friends in the presence of a thing far beyond the reach of words. As they stared out into infinity, each felt, as never before, the pitiful smallness of the whole world they had known, and the insignificance of human beings and their works. Silently their minds reached out to each other in understanding. Unconsciously, Margaret half shuddered and moved closer to Crane, and a tender look came over Crane's face as he looked down at the beautiful young woman at his side. And she was beautiful. Rest and food had erased the marks of her imprisonment. Dorothy's deep and unassumed faith in the ability of Seton and Crane had quieted her fears. And finally, a costume of Dorothy's, well-made and exceedingly expensive clothes, which fit her well and in which she looked her best and knew it, had completely restored her self-possession. He looked up quickly and again studied the stars. But now, in addition to the wonders of space, he saw a mass of wavy black hair, high piled upon a queenly head, deep brown eyes veiled by long black lashes, sweet sensitive lips, a firmly rounded dimpled chin, and a beautifully formed young body. How stupendous! How unbelievably great this is! Margaret whispered. How vastly greater than any perception one could possibly get on earth! And yet... She paused with her lips caught under two white teeth and went on, hesitatingly. But doesn't it seem to you, Mr. Crane, that there is something in a man as great as even all this? That there must be, or Dorothy and I could not be sailing out here in such a wonderful thing as this skylark. 
that you and Mr. Dick Seaton have made. Days passed. Dorothy timed her waking hours with those of Seaton, preparing his meals and lightening the tedium of his long vigils at the board. And Margaret did the same for Crane. But often they assembled in the saloon while Duquesne was on watch, and there was much fun and laughter, as well as serious discussion among the four. Margaret, already adopted as a friend, proved a delightful companion. Her ready tongue, her quit delicate wit, and her facility of expression delighted all three. One day, Crane suggested to Seaton that they should take notes in addition to the photos they had been taking. I know comparatively little of astronomy, but with the instruments we have, we should be able to get data, especially on planetary systems, which would be of interest to astronomers. Miss Spencer, being a secretary, could help us. Sure, Seaton said. That's an idea. Nobody else has ever had a chance to do it before. I'll be glad to. Taking notes is the best thing I do, Margaret cried and called for pad and pencils. After that, the two worked together for several hours at the end of Martin's offshifts. The Skylark passed one solar system after another with a velocity so great it was impossible to land. Margaret's association with Crane, begun as a duty, became a real pleasure for both. Working together in research, sitting together at the board, in easy conversation, or in equally easy silence, they compressed into days more real companionship than is usually possible in months. More and more often, as time went on, Crane found the vision of his dream home floating in his mind as he steered the Skylark in her meteoric flight or as he lay strapped into his narrow bunk. Now, however, the central figure of the vision, instead of being a blur, was clear and sharply defined. And for her part, Margaret was drawn more and more to the quiet and unassuming but steadfast young inventor, with his wide knowledge and his keen, incisive mind. The Skylark finally slowed enough to make a landing possible, and course was laid in toward the nearest planet of a copper-bearing sun. As the vessel neared the planet, a wave of excitement swept through four of the five. They watched the globe grow larger, glowing white, its outline softened by the atmosphere surrounding it. It had two satellites. Its sun, a great blazing orb, looked so big and so hot that Margaret became uneasy. Isn't it dangerous to get so close, Dick? Nah, watching the parameters is part of the pilot's job. Any overheating, and he'd snatch us away in a hurry. They dropped into the atmosphere and on down, almost to the surface. The air was breathable, its composition being very similar to that of Earth's air, except that the carbon dioxide was substantially higher. Its pressure was somewhat high, but not too much. Its temperature, while high, was endurable. The planet's gravitational pull was about 10% higher than Earth's, the ground almost hidden by a rank growth of vegetation but here and there appeared glade-like openings. Landing upon one of the open spaces, they found the solid ground and walked out. What appeared to be a glade was in reality a rock, or rather a ledge, of apparently solid metal, with scarcely a loose fragment to be seen. At one end of the ledge rose a giant tree, wonderfully symmetrical, but of a peculiar form, its branches being longer at the top than at the bottom having broad, dark green leaves, long thorns, and odd, flexible, shoot-like tendrils, 
It stood as an outpost of the dense vegetation beyond. The fern trees, towering 200 feet or more into the air, were totally unlike the forests of Earth. They wore an intensely vivid green and stood motionless in the still hot air. Not a sign of animal life was to be seen. The whole landscape seemed to be asleep. A younger planet than ours, Duquesne said, in the Carboniferous or about. Aren't those fern trees like those in the cold measure, Seton? Check. I was just trying to think what they reminded me of. But it's the ledge that interests me to no end. Whoever heard of a chunk of noble metal that big? How do you know it's noble? Dorothy asked. There's no corrosion, and it's probably been sitting here for a million years. Seton, who had walked over to one of the loose lumps, kicked it with his heavy shoe. It didn't move. He bent over to pick it up with one hand. It still didn't move. With both hands, with all the strength of his back, he could lift it, but that was all. What do you make of this, Duquesne? Duquesne lifted the mass, then took out his knife and scraped. He studied the freshly exposed metal and the scrapings, then scraped and studied again. Well, it is in the platinum group, almost certainly. And the only known member of that group with that peculiar bluish sheen is your ex. But didn't we agree that free ex and copper couldn't exist on the same planet, and that planets of copper-bearing suns carry copper? Yes, but that doesn't make it true. If this stuff is X, it will give the cosmologists something to fight about for the next 20 years. I'll take these scrapings and run a couple of quick tests. Do that. I'll gather in these loose nuggets. If it's X, and I'm pretty sure it mostly is, it'll be enough to run all the power plants on Earth for the next 10,000 years. Crane and Seton, accompanied by the two girls, rolled the nearest pieces of metal up to the ship. Then, as the quest led them farther and farther afield, Crane protested. This is none too safe, Dick. It looks perfectly safe to me, quiet as a... Margaret screamed, her head turned, looking back toward the Skylark, and her face was a mask of horror. Seaton drew his pistol as he whirled, only to check his finger on the trigger and lower his hand. Nothing but explosive bullets, he said and the four watched a thing come out slowly from behind their ship. Its huge, squat legs supported a body at least a hundred feet long. It was big and ungainly. At the end of a long, sinuous neck, a small head seemed composed entirely of cavernous mouth armed with row upon row of carnivorous teeth. Dorothy gasped with terror. Both girls shrank closer to the two men, who maintained a baffled silence as the huge beast slid its hideous head along the hull of the vessel. I can't shoot it, Mart. It would wreck the boat. And if I had any solids, I don't think they'd do any good anyway. No, we'd better hide until it goes away. You two take that ledge. We'll take this one. Or get far enough away from the Skylark so we can blow them apart, Seaton added as with Dorothy close behind him, he dropped behind the low bulwark. Margaret, her eyes staring, fixed upon the monster, remained motionless until Crane touched her gently and drew her down to his side. Don't be frightened, Peggy. It will go away soon. I'm not now, much. She drew a deep breath. If you weren't here, though, Martin, I'd be dead of pure fright. His arm tightened around her, then he forced it to relax. A roll of gunfire came from the Skylark. The creature roared in pain and rage, 
but was quickly silenced by the stream of 50 caliber machine gun bullets. That's Duquesne on the job, let's go, Seaton cried. And the four rushed up the slope. Making a detour to avoid the writhing body, they plunged through the opening door. Duquesne closed the lock. They huddled together in overwhelming relief as an appalling tumult arose outside. The scene, so quiet a few moments before, was horribly changed. The air was filled with hideous monsters. Winged lizards of prodigious size hurtled through the air to crash against the Skylark's armored hull. Flying monstrosities with the fangs of tigers attacked viciously. Dorothy screamed and started back as a scorpion-like thing ten feet in length leapt at the window in front of her, its terrible sting spraying the quartz with venom. As it fell to the ground, a spider, if an eight-legged creature with spines instead of hair, faceted eyes, and a bloated globular body weighing hundreds of pounds, could be called a spider, leapt upon it and mighty mandibles against terrible sting, a furious battle raged. Twelve-foot-long cockroaches climbed nimbly across the fallen timber of the morass and began feeding voraciously on the carcass of the creature Duquesne had killed. They were promptly driven away by another animal, a living nightmare of that reptilian age which apparently combined the nature and disposition of Tyrannosaurus rex with a physical shape approximating that of a saber-toothed tiger. The newcomer towered 15 feet high at the shoulders and had a mouth disproportionate even at that great size, a mouth armed with sharp fangs three feet in length. He had barely begun his meal, however, when he was challenged by another nightmare, a thing shaped more or less like a crocodile. The crocodile charged. The tiger met him head on, fangs in front and rending claws outstretched, clawing, striking, tearing savagely, an avalanche of bloodthirsty rage. The combatants stormed up and down the little island. Suddenly the great tree bent over and lashed out against both animals. It transfixed them with thorns, which the watchers now saw were both needle-pointed and barbed. It ripped at them with its long branches, which were, in fact, highly lethal spears. The broad leaves, equipped with sucking discs, wrapped themselves around the hopelessly impaled victims. The long, slender twigs or tendrils, each of which now had an eye at its extremity, waved about at a safe distance. After absorbing all of the two gladiators that was absorbable, the tree resumed its former position, motionless in all its strange outlandish beauty. Dorothy licked her lips, which were almost as wet as her face. I think I'm going to be sick, she remarked conversationally. No, you're not. Seaton tightened his arm. Chin up, Ace. Okay, Chief. Maybe not. At least this time. Color began to reappear on her cheeks. But, Dick, will you please blow up that horrible tree? Wouldn't be so bad if it were ugly like the rest of the things. But it's actually beautiful. Sure I will. I think we'd better get out of here. This is no place to start a copper mine. Even if there's any copper here which there probably isn't. It's X, Duquesne, isn't it? Yes, 99 plus percent at least. That reminds me, Seaton turned to Duquesne, hand outstretched. You squared it, Blackie. Say the word, and the war's off. Duquesne ignored the hand. Not on my side, he said evenly. I act as one of the party as long as I'm with you. 
When we get back, however, I still intend to take both of you out of circulation. He went to his room. Well, I'll be, Seaton bit off the word. He ain't a man. He's a cold-blooded fish. A robot. Yes, I agree. He's a machine, Margaret declared. I always thought so, and now I know it. We'll pull his cork when we get back, Seaton said. He asked for it. We're going to have to give it to him with both barrels. Crane went to the board, and soon they were approaching another planet, which was surrounded by a dense fog. Descending slowly, they found it to be a mass of boiling hot steam and rank vapor under enormous pressure. The next planet looked barren and dead. Its atmosphere was clear, but of a peculiar yellowish-green color. Analysis showed it was over 90% chlorine. No life of any earthly type could exist naturally upon such a world, and a search for copper, even in spacesuits, would be extremely difficult, if not impossible. Well, Seaton said, as they were once more in space, we've got copper enough to visit quite a few more solar systems if we have to. But there's a nice, hopeful-looking planet right over there. It may be the one we're looking for. Arriving in the belt of atmosphere, they tested it as before, and they found it satisfactory. They headed toward the surface. <laughs>